How the people who eat up the most in this world often don't taste what it is they've dined on. How those who have the means to eat whatever they like are always hungry for more. Always more. While the truly famished among us sweep the floors and scrub the dishes and leave the village at night to sleep in places where the rooms are smaller, away from the water and the views, in the woods, in simple beds behind doors as thin as paper, the best wood haven't been cut for somebody else, for Augustus Lambry and his like. When the loggers first came here, a hundred and fifty years ago and more, they were poor, but their will was mighty. They might have worked for men like Lambry, who slept in clean white sheets, but the trees those lumbermen felled were their own business, their own life and death at the edge of the void and they cut only the biggest, loftiest trunks and shoved and dynamited them downriver toward the mills and the sea. In those days, Benito's Cove was a half-moon's sweep of deep water, deeper than it is now, with cypress trees perched thick as crows on the cliffs, except for where a track was cleared to make way for the Lambry logging chutes. Even after the boarding houses and saloons started going up, once there were so many loggers, a town had to be built to manage them. Those trees and the mounds of salt grass covering the headlands stayed free and wild. Then, in time, the Main Street Hotel sprang to life, where maids who washed and ironed and cooked could hope to stay clear of grabby sailors, and the peak-roofed storefronts all along Albion Street, and St. Clement's Church, its white steeple driving away the last of the Indians, and finally, the temple the Chinaman built, with its roofs curled like red shoes left out in the sun. And closer in, on the first hill after the fine houses of the merchants, Evergreen Cemetery was laid out. Evergreen, where even now my poor family rests, broken footstones all in a row. Above the marble monuments of the wealthy, the gulls rooked and called and the white-waisted clouds floated, while down in the cove the dog-hole schooners bobbed at anchor, creaking, and over at the point the lighthouse swung its jeweled lamp in a wide circle, warning of hidden dangers. Just because you can't see a thing doesn't mean she isn't there. The hunter has parked his bright car at the foot of Evergreen Hill, and is coming now from the direction of the cemetery toward me. I know what he is. I've seen and heard a hunter's boots before. They make a sound like a saw blade scraping on sand. This one, he's tall and bulky and box-jawed. He squints at the house, his cheeks taking up the slack skin under his beard. I'm standing in the rose garden, in my white dress, with my red ribbon twining through my hair, and a little shiver runs through me, a piece of my own will. I hold steady, the way you do when you know a wave is coming and you lock your knees to meet it. The sandy street leads him to the wrought iron gate at the edge of the garden. He opens it, then turns around to make sure he's latched the groaning lock securely behind him, but maybe also to be certain he's alone. So this is a hunter, I think, who watches his back. He looks up and sees the black-railed tower of the house, 
the steeple meant to rival the churches, with its white shingles layered like gull's feathers. Though here, the paint is starting to flake off and show the older white underneath, the ghost of its old self. He narrows his eyes again, and I see that his skin is rough, a working man's face, and that his clothes are black and simple, a working man's clothes, and that although he is, to be sure, one of the living, he's one of the dying, too, because there is grey at his temples and grey blurring his whiskers, his own flake showing. He turns his peppered cheek to his left, then to his right, and sees, not me, but the great bundle of life beside him, one of our famed Lambry rose bushes. He reaches his hand out entranced, cupping one perfect yellow bud. A breeze coming from...